what a wonderful hymn that is. Worth thinking about those words deeply. I don't know, but I guess some of the songs that we've been singing today, maybe one or two other things that you've seen around the place might just give you the hint that Christmas is coming. Yeah? Sort of, you, you're getting the feel. Um, I've got to admit, I'm a sort of, I'm somewhat grumpy sometimes. I know it's hard to believe, but I am. Uh, and I get a little bit crump, grumpy about Christmas time over one thing in particular, and that is Xmas. I don't know if you sort of, you know, you, you sort of feel like Christ gets removed from Christmas by saying Xmas all the time. But I did a little bit of... I've always just felt grumpy about it. And I don't feel so grumpy about it today because I've done a little bit of research. And I found out that Xmas actually first appeared in the 16th century. Would you believe that? All those hundreds of years ago. And as I am, I suddenly realised that really what it's done is it's taken the word Christ and replaced it with the cross. And that's what they originally did it for. And so that thinking about Christmas actually inadvertently, I suspect, focuses people's mind beyond the birth into the cross, which is what Jesus came for and we'll see later. Uh, And Mark 10.45 puts it like this, even the Son of Man did not come, that's Advent by the way, where it just started Advent, to come to... Uh, to be served, but to serve and to give his life. That's why Jesus came. That's what Advent actually is all about. It's leading us on, going on towards uh, towards Christmas, of course, but on towards Easter. What a wonderful thing that is, as we remember why Jesus came. But, and this is where Grumpy Ken comes back, I have noticed a few more little things like this sneaking into our society. There's Lego Masters, which just has had Bricksmas, right? Now, I've got nothing against Lego Masters. They are f- it's fabulous, it's fun, they do wonderful things. There's nothing wrong with Lego Masters, right? But then there's this awful one, amongst many others, Drinksmas, right? So that Christmas is more about getting exactly the right drink so that you can get yourself absolutely smashed than it is about anything else. Now, there are also other subtle miscuings of the meanings of Christmas. Now, let's just watch this and see if you can pick the issue. I'm not going to ask for answers, it's all right, but see if you can pick what the issue with this is. There was a little hint just before as the Coca-Cola truck went past and I noticed some of you saw it and then at the very end we see it. Now, the clear error here is, of course, that Coca-Cola is the way to share happiness. But perhaps, in a sort of a more bar humbug sort of view, that the, the problem, the, the misalignment, the miscuing we make about Christmas is that it's about sharing happiness. 
And the way we seem we think we can do that, anyone, the way we see it in families, is that we increase our material possessions. We keep buying stuff, more and more stuff. Uh, We all know, deep inside ourselves, that Christmas is all about giving, don't we? That's what it's all about. Uh, Since we were children, we've been taught it's all about giving, not about getting, except when you're five, it's all about getting and not about giving. And when we get over that, when we get over that, it's what am I getting for Christmas thing, uh, we know that we're an adult. We know we've grown up when we're past that. We've grown up, we're much more mature than all of those sorts of things. And you know what? Jesus is on our side at this point. Acts chapter 20, verse 35, in the only recorded piece of Jesus' words outside of the Gospels, he says this, and Revelation, it is more blessed to give than to receive. See, it's so much better to give than it is to get. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly that is true. But is that what Christmas is actually about? And that's what our reading from Isaiah today is all about. So it'd be really great if you had Isaiah open in front of you and there's a little outline here that I've been going through and I've just uh, gone through the little introduction. So we're about to start on God Makes an Offer. So the scene here, uh, there'll be a map, of course it's a map, uh, is that Ahaz, king of Judah, which is the southern part of the land of Israel, is about to be attacked by the kings of Israel, which is the northern part of the kingdoms of Israel, and Syria, or Aram, which is right up on the top right-hand side that you can see there. So they joined together, Israel and Syria, Aram, and attacked Jerusalem, besieged it. So chapter 7, verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem. But they could not overpower it. Now, the background is that Assyria is there. Assyria is making lots of threatening uh, threats against the, the kingdoms of Israel, and they want to form this whole sort of Palestinian alliance to oppose Assyria, which is a little bit like all of the counties of Tasmania trying to oppose China, but let, let's put that aside for the moment. But for, this, for, the, for the sake of what we see here in Isaiah chapter 7, the walls of Jerusalem are safety for the time being. They're within their walls, they could not overcome the walls, he says. But, of course, this is only a matter of time. Jerusalem and King Ahaz were besieged. When would they run out of food? That's what sieges are all about. How long can you supply your own city with water and with food without them running out and resorting to all sorts of horrible things to eat? And so, in a sense, they were facing destruction at the very heart of God's people, God's city, God's Zion, God's Jerusalem. It was about to be destroyed. And so God speaks to this king, speaks to Ahaz, and he makes an offer. And he offers to the king something quite extraordinary. And sometimes it's easy to miss. Look at verse 11. Ask the Lord, your God, for a sign whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. What an extraordinary thing. 
It's extraordinary partly because of its scope, right? Whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. Ahaz asked for any sign, says God, and I'll show it to you. Whatever extent it may be, nothing is too great for me to do. There would be no mistaking this sign. But it's also extraordinary because God is offering a sign. He's, he's making this offer, and that happens so rarely in the Bible. And nowhere, in this sense, at the receiver's whim, nowhere where you can choose the sign, you choose what you want to do. Like he offers Gideon the sign of keeping the fleece dry or wet, but he doesn't let Gideon choose what's going on, he chooses. Much more commonly, people ask for a sign because they don't believe the promise of God. It's actually a symbol of people not trusting God to ask for a sign. Let me give you an example. It's like if I came to you and said to you, okay, I promise that I will meet up with you tomorrow for lunch. I've made my promise. And then you said, okay, prove it to me. Give me some evidence Give me some evidence apart from the fact that you've never failed before, that you've never missed an appointment before, that you're always there when I've needed you. Give me some other evidence that you'll actually be there. Give me the the booking sheet from the restaurant or whatever it might be. You see, give me some proof that you'll be there. Really, what it's doing is saying, well, I don't trust you. You just promised, but I don't trust you. You've got to prove to me that you'll do what you say you'll do. But this time it's different. Ahaz doesn't ask, God offers the sign. So the sign is coming in a different direction. But Ahaz still rejects God. I think he's using false humility as a defence. Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Verse 12. Now that has a background. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, which will come up on the screen, it says there's do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa in the rebellion in the, in the desert. Uh, but really, this isn't that. This isn't what's going on here because it's not Ahaz asking God for the sign, it's God offering the sign. So what he's doing is actually rejecting God. He's rejecting God's offer. To accept this request from God would not be to act as if he didn't trust him. You follow? Because God's offering. In fact, he's acting as if this could be some sort of trap. Now, are you testing me, God? Are you seeing if I will put you to the test even though you've offered... Do you see? I know that if I ask, then you will tell me I shouldn't have asked. I know you, God. You see, that's that deep distrust going on there. And Isaiah calls him out on it. See verse 13. Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? (laughs) It's completely reasonable. God says, let me reassure you. Let me give you proof. Let me show you this sign. But Ahaz says, no, I'm not interested. And so God says, just as humans will not tolerate lack of trust by refusing this sort of sign, then God says, I'm not going to tolerate it. I'm offering this sign. I want to reassure you. Why won't you let me reassure you? 
then there's that just little tinge of impending impatience. Not the sort of impatience that you and I get that springs out of anger and pettiness, but an end to patience that springs from God's absolute holiness and his knowledge of Ahaz's heart. But God will give a sign, which is what Isaiah tells us there in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So God gives a sign. He gives a sign of hope. The birth of a child is so often a sign of hope. I work in hospitals, as many of you know. The other day I was in the lift and a new family got on to the lift and they had their newborn son. I presume it was a son, I couldn't tell. But, you know, just all in blue and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, the newborn son cradled in his arms, father, and you could see in the father's eyes the hope of someone to share his dreams. Is this going to be the new cricket captain of 20, 2050? Or is it going to be the new Lionel Messi? Or is it... I shouldn't have said that word this morning, should I? That's bad. Uh, whatever the dream is, whatever the dream... He's all caught up in this little baby. There were no other children wandering around. There was here and the eyes of the father. And the mother standing next, you could, you could feel the hope radiating, the hope that there would be son, the, this son, the son to love her unconditionally and that she could pour her love into in a way that she could only dream and hope about at the moment. But for someone like Ahaz, for the king, the child is actually a hope of his future. For all of us, a child is a hope of future. If we ever stopped having children as a nation or as a world, there would be no future, right? There would be a very, very close end to us. But for him, it would be that the family would continue. And that would not be the end of his line. And so God is offering this sign and remember a sign points to something now here is sydney that's a satellite view of sydney this is a sign now which one is the real sydney the sign or the place of course it's not the sign it's the place right but the sign points to this reality, points to the fact that there is a real Sydney, that there is, this is the way to get there or this is where we are or whatever it is. But it's not the sign that's the thing, it's what it's pointing to that matters. So this sign that God gives to Ahaz is pointing to something. And this sign involves a virgin. Now, the word for virgin in both the, both the original languages could mean young woman. Okay, doesn't have to mean virgin, but if it just meant young woman, I don't think it would be much of a sign. Do you? Oh, someone's pregnant. Hmm, that's exciting. No, no, no. This is significant. This is a virgin. This is a, someone who's never known a man who has become pregnant. And it's not just any virgin, it's the virgin, he says. So it may be that it was actually an has his time, someone that was well known, maybe the queen, we don't know, we're not given any more detail than that. But this woman would become pregnant and give birth to that son shows there is hope from God for Jerusalem. 
And it is exactly that that is spoken about by Matthew in chapter 1. We're going to look at Matthew next week and then on Christmas Day. But uh, next week, we're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus. Really important. We often skip over the genealogies, but the genealogies are important. It starts with the, uh, Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay? Takes you all the way back to Abraham. He is our father. That's what we've heard over and over again as we've gone through John's Gospel. And then the description of how Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant before they had consummated the marriage and that that was all happening for a reason. Verse 22 in Matthew, all this took place to fulfil what the Lord had said through the prophet, the prophet Isaiah, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. There's verse 14. See, the sign that was given to Ahaz pointed beyond the immediate. It pointed not just to the hope that they might have in surviving the siege, but forward even more. About 130 years later, Jerusalem, while it overcome the current siege, was besieged again by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. And we looked at all of that when we looked at Daniel last year. And this time, Jerusalem did fall. 587 BC, it was gone. But this sign, this Ahaz virgin sign, actually pointed beyond that. 700 years forward to another birth. And the details are right. The virgin Mary did fall pregnant while still a virgin. And while Matthew doesn't spell it out, we, hear, we heard it in the reading that, reading that Helen did for us, uh, in Luke, where he says this, Mary was greatly troubled at his words, you'll become pregnant, and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus, who will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? asked the angel. Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. You see, here is the sign that Isaiah prophesied about. The one that he looked forward to that would promise salvation to his people. Salvation from imprisonment. And so a son is born. Next week and over the next few weeks, we're going to hear more about that son. We'll hear more about this son who, in the ancient world, was your heir. He was the one who would inherit all that you had and ensure that your name, your memory, your reputation would continue. Who would take your place if you were the king and who would ensure the continuation of your line, of your dynasty. That was a sign of great hope to them, that a son was born, a ruler and heir that could continue as God's chosen sign. But he was even more than that, because he had a special name. Now, you've heard me say this before, we've heard many people say this before, so names are significant, names are important. Many people are given names because people like them. 
You know, Gwyneth Paltrow called her child Apple or something like that, well, didn't she? I mean, they've got nothing... Okay, she wants to call her child a piece of fruit, that's her problem. But they liked the sound or they had a friend with that name or whatever. But sometimes I think children are given names out of sheer cruelty. I met someone some time ago now whose name was David. Lovely name. I like the name David. It's a great name. Beloved. Now, how would you spell that? Just something like that, yeah? That's how you'd spell David? Easy. Guess how he spelled David? Like this. Now, what does that mean? That means that for the rest of this guy's life, he's spelling his name every time he tells someone. It's cruel, isn't it? I was called Ken. I am called Ken. Because when I was born, my mother, who wanted to call me Richard, because it was his fa- her father's name, thought I looked so much like my father that I had to be called Ken instead. And then, of course, my father chose my mother's name for my sister. Put that together. Yes, two Kens, two Marjories in the same family. I know, I know. But this, this is a very special, this is a meaningful name, a name chosen by God himself Emmanuel. Now, we, we read that as a name, right? But it actually is a Hebrew word and it means God with us. Iman, with us, El, God. And it's an amazing name that God is with us. A promise that God is with us is embodied in this child, that God himself would be with us. And it's a name of great, great comfort to those in Jerusalem it was the promise that though things looked bad God the most high the Lord Yahweh that in their time of their greatest need their greatest savior was at hand in the midst of captivity their deliverer was amongst them but that was just the foretaste that was just the the little tinges of the future of this little baby called Emmanuel in the New Testament that Matthew and Luke tell us about because this one is not just the promise that God is amongst them but that he is God himself according to Luke 135 that we read so the holy one to be born will be called son of God he's the king he's God this holy one a term reserved for, reserved for Israel's God, is born, takes on flesh, becomes human, and dwells amongst us, as John says, full of grace and truth. He shows us exactly who God is because he is God. And that is the amazing story of Christmas, the one that we know and love, or perhaps we may have forgotten, or perhaps you've never heard before if this is one of your first times in church with us. That God himself took on flesh, not that a human got so good that he became God, but that God himself became a human being. And he walked, and he talked, and he ate, and he loved, and he slept, and he lived, and he finally died on a cross as Matthew says, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the name Joshua, Yeshua, and means salvation from God. And that is a great comfort to everyone that counts Jesus as their friend. 
as their Lord, as their Saviour. Our Deliverer is at hand. Our God walked amongst us and died for us. That absolutely shows his commitment to us, how much he loves us. But, and this time it's another big but, there is something to be concerned about in all of that. He's a God who has been amongst us. He understands the human condition. Not only because he made us, he knit us together, every little molecule, every tendon, every piece of us, he he made together in our mother's wombs and grew us. Not only because he made us, but because he lived our life as well. He faced our challenges, he got tired, he got hungry, he felt pain, he, he suffered injustice, he faced inequity. He really understands what it is to be human because he has stepped in our shoes. And that, while it is on one hand this enormous comfort, he understands me, also it's just a little bit worrying, isn't it? Because he really understands what it is to be human. Because you and I then, we can't hide... We can't say, oh, you don't understand. You don't get it. You don't, you know, you're, you're God, you're up there, you're, you're so far away, you don't understand what it's like to be me, little small human me. You haven't walked in my limitations. Well, he has. He has stepped in our shoes. He has walked our life. And when God is amongst us like that, then it should make us feel just a little bit uncomfortable as well. Because we all fail, we all fall short, we all need a saviour. Which is why he came, to save us from our sins. But so often we just don't want him. And we just think to ourselves, God, just butt out of my life. And so the word, the word that we so easily bandy about, gospel, and we so simply translate as good news, isn't quite good news It actually means big news, grand announcement. Here's here's the sort of the front page stuff. A really important thing to say. And this really important thing to say will affect us whether we are on God's side or not. It's for everyone, you see, for all of humanity, this grand announcement. And that news is God has come amongst us. And he was called Jesus. Because he is the saviour. He is the one who will save us from our sins. A few years ago, I was approached by a Jewish family I know. And their son asked me, why do you celebrate Christmas? Of course, the easy answer is, it's, well, it's Jesus' birthday. Of course we celebrate Christmas. But I read on a blog yesterday, um, you know, somebody saying, why do we celebrate Christmas? It's his birthday. Um, why do you celebrate that in particular? Don't you celebrate it every day when you read the Bible and every day when you go to church and then there's Easter and then there's like, you celebrate it all the time. Why do you have to celebrate it on Christmas as well? You know, there's, there's some truth to that. But the wonderful thing about this conversation with Zach was that I was able to talk to him about how Christians believe that Jesus is actually the Jewish Messiah that he was the one who came as the Jewish king and came as the fulfilment of the Old Testament prophecies of Isaiah and the Old Testament prophecies uh, in Micah and other places, just like this one that we've read. And he was interested. Now, he's only 14, fair enough. He was interested, he listened carefully. But then, before, and 
understandably so, before it went much further, his mother whisked him away. I was a little sad about it, but I understood why. But it did cause me to ponder another question. How do we celebrate Christmas? Because Christmas, you see, is all about giving, but not actually quite so much about giving to others, but Christmas is really about what God, in his amazing plan and grace and love, is giving to us. So what we have seen today from Isaiah and from Luke is that Christmas is really about receiving. Receiving what God has given. Receiving that promise and hearing it and believing it taking it on board, that God with us, Emmanuel, is also Jesus, the one who will save us from our sins and receiving the hope that he offers in the virgin giving birth to this son. Receiving the hope that comes when God himself is amongst us, then in flesh sharing our humanity to conquer death for us, now by his Holy Spirit that dwells in each of us who believe and pours hope into our heart, the best way any of us can celebrate Christmas is to receive. Not the gifts we give each other. Now, it's nice to receive gifts. I'm not saying don't don't push away the gifts you're given. Don't be rude. But the great gift that God has given us, his son, born, who lived and died for you and for me. That's what Christmas is really all about. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we've heard today from your prophet Isaiah that you promised that your only son would come in the flesh for us and be born of the Virgin. Now, Father, in these last days, since the days of Christ, we have seen that you have fulfilled your word. When he who came to redeem the world also comes to be our judge. May we not be put to shame because of what your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us and the forgiveness that he can offer us through his death on the cross. And may we rejoice that Emmanuel, God with us, is also Jesus, the one who will save his people from his sins, our sins. Amen.